All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope everyone's having a good weekend so far. Uh, as Chris just said, we are going to continue on in this new series we started last week through the book of Philippians. But before we look at our passage this morning, I want us just to take a minute here and I want us to think about the importance of perspective. Now, I know uh, most of us in here or out here probably fall into one of two camps. Either we tend to be more optimistic or we tend to be more pessimistic. And with that, as you think about that, isn't it amazing how two people can be going through the exact same scenario and the same situation, and yet they can end up with two completely different perspectives on it? I mean, this kind of thing happens all of the time between uh, me and my wife, Faith. Uh, she's definitely more of the optimist in our relationship, and I'm definitely more of the pessimist, or as I like to defend myself by saying, the realist. Um, one example of this recently is our oldest son is playing baseball this year, and uh, we're only three games into the season, but it, I can tell you already, it's obvious, they're not very good. And uh, as a dad, it's killing me. Like literally the other night, this poor kid was pitching, and he could not throw a strike to save his life. It's first year a kid pitched, so it's pretty rough. Uh, I mean, literally, like I'm pretty sure if this kid's life depended on it, he wouldn't have been able to throw a strike. Um, if it wasn't for the five-run max limit per inning, I'm pretty sure I would still be sitting at that ball field waiting for this kid to throw, just get the ball close to the plate. Now, in those kinds of moments, I'm just going to be real with you. I, the thoughts that run through my head and sometimes the words that come out are things like, this is terrible. What is this coach doing? Jay, get a new pitcher, please, you know? My kid's life's going to be ruined from being on such a bad team. This will probably scar him forever. He'll want to quit. You know, all of these kinds of thoughts. Meanwhile, face like, let's go team. You can do it. Hey, that pitch was better. It's, he's, he's getting closer. At least he didn't hit the kid this time, right? Hey, hey, maybe this will be good for our son. Like maybe he'll learn to be a, 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 you know, a good loser or, you know, not a sore loser at least. Maybe he'll be a good sport and, and on and on she goes. And again, here's the thing, we're experiencing the exact same situation, and yet we approach it and we interpret it from two totally different perspectives. You know, speaking of baseball and perspectives, I, I ran across this quote this week from a guy named Tug McGraw, uh, who if you don't know, he was a famous pitcher in the 70s and 80s. And interestingly enough, for you country music fans out there, for like the three of you, uh, he also happens to be the father of Tim McGraw, the country singer, um, but that's beside the point. Uh, but here's what Tug said in regards to his philosophy and his perspective around baseball and specifically pitching. Uh, this is what he called his frozen snowball theory. Tug said this. He said, if I come in to pitch with the bases loaded and heavy hitter Willie Stargell is at bat, there's no reason I want to throw the ball. But eventually I have to pitch. So in those moments, I remind myself that in a few billion years, the earth will be a frozen snowball hurling through space, and nobody's going to care what Willie Stargell did with the bases loaded. Now, I'm not sure I agree with his theory about the earth one day becoming a frozen snowball, but I do like his perspective as it relates to thinking about the bigger picture, especially when you're in those challenging moments. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that Paul is in one of those moments. He's facing some pretty terrible circumstances. And yet, even in that, he is able to maintain a healthy 
perspective. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, invite you now to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, again, you can turn there in the Bible app. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 26. Uh, while you're turning there, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, thank you that the rain is held off, Lord. Father, I pray you'd be pleased to let your Holy Spirit come and dwell among us, Lord, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you and to obey you. And so, Lord, we look forward to what you want to teach us and how you want to encourage and instruct us this morning through your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our outline uh, to walk us through the passage this morning will be this. Number one, Paul's perspective on his imprisonment. Number two, we'll look at Paul's perspective on his rivals. And then finally, we'll look at Paul's perspective on his life and on his death. And so starting with the first one here, look, uh, we'll look at Paul's perspective on his imprisonment. Look at, here at verse 12. Paul writes this. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Okay, so clearly Paul makes a transition here in the letter from some introductory and opening remarks that we looked at last week, and now he's beginning to move into the body or the main section of the letter. And what Paul says here is basically this. He says, look, Philippians, I, I know that you were concerned for me. I know that you were worried about what has happened to me, but look, these things have actually helped spread and advance the gospel. Now, before we move on, I think it might be good to remind us here of what Paul is talking about when he refers to these things that have happened to him. Well, again, the context here of the letter, if you remember from last week, is that Paul is writing to the Philippians from jail. Now, there are a couple different theories as to where exactly he is at in prison and what time period it is, but most likely he is in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial before Caesar somewhere in the early to mid-60s. Not the 1960s, 60 AD, but uh, if you remember from the book of Acts, Paul ended up in Rome in prison because of a visit that he did to Jerusalem, which you can read about in Acts chapter 21. And again, if you're familiar with that section, what happens is that Paul makes this trip to Jerusalem, and while there, the religious leaders seize the opportunity to capture Paul and to arrest him on some false charges. Not only that, though, but they actually begin to plot and to plan uh, how to kill him. But as you keep on reading, you end up seeing that Paul, uh, through a series of some pretty crazy events, will end up making it to Rome in order to stand trial before Caesar. And that's how the book of Acts ends, with him uh, on house arrest, on, uh, again, waiting to, to stand before Caesar. And so here he is now, he's in prison, he's awaiting trial, and in the meantime, the Philippian church has sent one of their members, uh, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, to Paul in order to bring him some provisions, basically like a care package, probably with some food and clothing and, and who knows what else. And now Paul is writing them a letter back to basically say thank you and to also update them on how he is doing and to give them some instruction and encouragement as well. 
And so with that as a little bit of a context of what's going on here, uh, let me share with you a, a, a quote from commentator Alec Motier, who uh, is, is giving in uh, some more thoughts as to these events that have happened to Paul. Here's what he said. He said, Paul was nearly lynched by a religious mob, and he ended up in a Roman prison, having escaped flogging only by pleading his citizenship. His whole care was beset by a mockery of justice. For though right was on his side, he could not secure a hearing. He was made the subject of unjust and unprovoked insult and shame, malicious misrepresentation and deadly plot. He was imprisoned owning to official craving for popularity or for money or because of an overpunctilious facade of legalism. The and vilification that surrounded him were past belief. Yet, he looks back and he asserts, what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so you read verse 12 here in light of that context and that background and you're left thinking, or at least I'm left thinking like, what? Paul, are you insane? Paul, have you lost your mind? I mean, Paul, how, how can you think like that? How can you make a statement like that? I mean, it was just the thing that struck me this week as I studied this is it's just amazing how much of a non-victim mindset and mentality Paul has here. I mean, if anyone had a rightful claim of being mistreated, of being a victim of injustice, it's Paul, and yet he doesn't go there. He doesn't wrap his identity around being a victim. Now, for Paul, as you read through the New Testament, what you find is that his identity was solidly in Christ. It wasn't in his circumstances. It wasn't in his past. It wasn't in his political party or ideology. It certainly wasn't in his sexuality or marital status. No, for Paul, his identity was in Christ. I mean, again, that phrase, in Christ, or that language, it is all over Paul's letters in the New Testament. That is how Paul thought about and talked about his primary identity. Now, in saying that, I, I'm not in any way denying that uh, there are people who are, in fact, victims of horrible things. Of, of course there are. I'm not even denying that those things affect and shape you. But what I am saying is that for the believer, for the Christ follower, our primary identity is one of being in Christ. It's not in anything else, and that includes being a victim. Now, not only that, it's also pretty crazy here how much Paul refuses to give in to self-pity. I mean, he is literally in chains, in prison, facing most likely the death penalty. And yet, instead of complaining to the Philippians about how unjust all of this is, or even complaining about his physical discomfort and pain, instead, Paul's like, you know what, guys? This has actually served to advance the gospel. Again, I just want you to appreciate how crazy that is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I am terrible about giving in to self-pity. I mean, when I'm going through something hard, something challenging, be it physical or emotional or whatever, often that's all that I can think about or talk about. It's like, oh, how you doing? Oh, it's, it's just so hard. Oh, it's, it's, this is so unfair. Oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. In fact, last week, last Sunday, I was here early. I grabbed the table for the sound uh, board and in doing so, I threw out my back. <laughs> and uh, it was bad enough that I actually needed to go home and lay down and eventually see a physical therapist multiple, multiple times this week. 
which I'm just going to be honest, for only being 36, that is really depressing, right? Like, I used to be athletic, like I was good at sports. I'm like, what has happened to me? But all week long with that, I've just been fighting self-pity and thoughts like, God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? God, why, don't, Lord, don't you know that I'm trying to serve you? I was just trying to help Steve out and grab the boy, you know, why, why are you doing this to me? Lord, don't you know I need to prepare a sermon this week and how can I do that when it hurts to sit, when it hurts to stand and blah, blah, blah and on and on I can go. And yet the reality is, is that self-pity is really not all that helpful. I mean, actually I would go on, I would say it's worse than that. And speaking about self-pity, Oswald Chambers in his famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, he wrote this. He said, I must learn that the purpose of my life belongs to God, not me. God is using me from his great personal perspective. And all he asks of me is that I trust him. When I stop telling God what I want, he can freely work his will in me without any hindrance. He can crush me, exalt me, or do anything else he chooses. He simply asks me to have absolute faith in him and in his goodness. Self-pity is of the devil, and if I wallow in it, I cannot be used by God for his purposes in the world. Now, I know that's a pretty strong language there, but I think that he's probably right. And so again, if we look at this passage, this is exactly what Paul's mindset and perspective is. He's not wallowing in self-pity, but rather he's stepping outside and he's looking at the bigger picture of what God is doing. And in doing so, he's seeing how these circumstances, how these negative events have actually impacted the kingdom for good. And what we see here in verses 13 and 14 is that they're actually advancing the gospel in multiple ways. The first way the gospel is being advanced here by these circumstances, we see in verse 13, Paul talks about how the whole palace guard has come to know that he is in chains for Christ. And actually not just them, he even says, and everyone else. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how is that possible? Well, some scholars have pointed out that it was common for prisoners to be literally chained to a Roman guard while in prison and that those guards would switch out on four hour shifts. So every four hours, a new guard would come in and be chained. And not only that, some have also said that Paul was most likely in prison at this point already for a couple of years. And so with that, as you think about that, here's Paul, he's chained to a new guard every four hours. And what do you think that, that first question was? I mean, right, it's like the classic prison question. What are you in for, right? They're probably like, Paul, what are you in for? Murder, rape, theft? He's like, nope. I'm here because I can't stop telling people that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they're like, oh, okay, all right. You see, with that, it's possible, as we think about this verse, it's possible Paul is using hyperbole here when he says the whole palace guard and everyone else. But even if he is using hyperbole, it's clear, Paul never shuts up talking about Jesus. He never stops sharing the good news. On this point, commentator Gordon Fee said this. He said, for Paul, of course, this is the language of evangelism. In a world of religious pluralism, where evangelism has become something of a dirty word, one must not thereby recreate Paul in one's own image, which downplays this dimension in his life in Christ. Evangelism was his meat and potatoes, since he believed not only that the gospel is God's message of truth, but that it thereby contains the only good news for a fallen and broken world. Paul's single concern was to know Christ and to make him known. 
And so this is the first way that his imprisonment has advanced the gospel. But the second way he tells us here that it's advanced and affected the, the spread of the gospel is that it has created a boldness, a new boldness and courage for evangelism in the believers at Rome. Again, he says there in verse 14, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now on the surface, at least to me, that seems to make no sense at all. Like you would think Paul getting thrown in prison would have the opposite effect of that, right? Like you would think they would go into hiding, that at the very least they would, they would shut up about Jesus, but instead it gives them more courage. It gives them more boldness. And I think this really just illustrates the upside downness of the kingdom of God. I mean, the Roman empire and the Judaizers agenda is to shut Paul up. It's to squash the advancement of the gospel, but instead of doing that, it actually has gone on to help spread it even more. And so because of that, and because Paul's life is so wrapped up and intertwined with his calling and mission, when Paul here now sitting in jail sits back and reflects on his imprisonment, and when he goes on to share that reflection with the Philippians, his perspective is this, you know what? This has actually worked out for the good. I can see how God is using this to advance the kingdom. You see, those Roman guards, they might have thought that they were, uh, that they were chained, uh, that the guards were, that I was being chained to a guard. But actually, you know what? They're chained to me, right? Paul, he is, he's flipped it. He's like, you're, you're, you're trying to chain me up to them, but no, I'm chained to them and I'm going to tell them about Jesus and I'm going to spread the gospel. And so this is Paul's mindset and perspective on his imprisonment. Let's go to the second circumstance in Paul's life. And that is his perspective on his rivals. Look again here at verse 15. It says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Okay, so this gets a little bit real here, right? Like, it's not all sunshine and roses for Paul. Paul's being honest here, and he bridges from the previous verse, and he's like, yes, it is true that my imprisonment has created a boldness uh, in the believers in Rome to share the gospel, and so because of that, they are proclaiming it without fear. However, though, it's also true that some of those people are doing so out of wrong motives. They're selfish for whatever reason. They're jealous of me, and because of that, they are trying to cause me trouble. Now, in terms of identifying this group of opponents or rivals, the, again, there are many guesses and theories as to who, who this group is. And part of the problem is that Paul, later on in Philippians, will go on to mention some, uh, another group of opponents, specifically in chapter 3. And so because of that, some have, made a, uh, have tried to claim that maybe it's the same group that Paul's talking about. But after studying it, it seems clear to me, no, this is, a, this is definitely a different group here in chapter 1 from those in chapter 3. Those in chapter 3, he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, i.e. those who require circumcision for salvation. And so again, based on that, it seems clear that, that this group here in chapter 1 is a different set of rivals or opponents. You see, the ones here in chapter 1, it's, it's clear that they're trying to cause Paul trouble, that they're motivated by envy and rivalry. However, though, based on what Paul says, it, it does seem like they are genuine believers in Christ. They might be immature, they might be selfish, but they do seem to be genuine believers. 
Whereas the group in chapter 3, they sound much more like the Judaizers that Paul challenges in the book of Galatians. I mean, one thing we have to keep in mind here is that Paul did not plant the church in Rome. I mean, that's why he in the book of Romans talks about wanting to visit them and to preach the gospel to them himself. Because again, he didn't plant the church. Someone else did. And so in light of that, perhaps Paul being here now in Rome, kind of on their turf and being in prison, maybe some of the believers in Rome have been made to feel insecure. Maybe it's led to them feeling jealous. And certainly that makes them immature. That makes them petty. But it does seem like, based on what Paul says, they are preaching an accurate gospel. They're just doing so in a way that is trying to negatively impact Paul. And so because of that, how does Paul respond? Does he get mad? Does he rebuke them? Does he tell them to shut up? Well, no, look at verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Again, that's amazing. Paul's like, you know what? I I could get mad. I could get offended. I could make a big stink about all of this. I could throw around my weight as an apostle of Christ. But instead, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to rejoice because the name of Jesus is being preached. That word Christ, it's anointed one. It's, it's very clear, the word Christ, it's Messiah. Well, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's the word for Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. And that means Jesus is king. Paul's like, I don't care about their motives in some ways. All I care about is that Jesus is being proclaimed as the king. You see, I love that because what it means is that Paul isn't getting sucked into unnecessary drama. You see, I think Paul knew the difference between actual heresy and false teaching over and against uh, just fellow believers who didn't like him or who had bad motives or who were immature, right? Like when it came to false teaching and heresy, like what we see with the Judaizers and Galatians and elsewhere, Paul does not mince words. He doesn't put up with it. No, he rebukes it. he He corrects it. And he does so in the strongest language possible. But again, here, it seems like this is a different situation. I mean, this would maybe be like the church down the road that we disagree with on secondary matters or who maybe annoys us because they're immature or they make bad decisions. I won't mention any names, but you might be able to think of some. Again, Paul understood what constituted actual heresy and what did not. And, you know, as I think about just sort of what you observe in the American church, I'm not sure we always do a good job of knowing the difference between those two. I mean, I don't know how many of you spend time uh, just strolling YouTube, uh, but for whatever reason, I can't figure it out. I keep getting videos suggested to me by these quote unquote heresy hunters who have made it their life mission to talk trash about fellow believers who they disagree with. And look, for the most part, none of them are actually calling out actual heresy. And instead, they're calling out and they're trashing fellow believers over very secondary issues. And with that, oftentimes, they're not even being fair about that. Instead, they're just pulling one sentence out of a sermon or out of an interview or out of someone's book, and they rip it out of its context. And they're like, look, see there? See what they said there? See, I told you this guy was dangerous. See, I told you this guy was a heretic. And it's weird, and it's sad, and it's unbiblical. And honestly, I believe it grieves the heart of Jesus. And yet we see this thing happen all the time. Now with that, I mean, let's be fair. There is a time, absolutely there's a time to call out false teaching and heresy. 
But let's just make sure that it's heresy according to the Bible's definition and not your own. Not you're like, this guy bothers me. I don't like the way he dresses. I don't like his view of this or that. Again, look at Paul's attitude here. He's like, look, it doesn't matter if I disagree with these people. It doesn't matter if they don't like me. It doesn't matter if they have bad or false motives. What matters is that Jesus, the king, is being preached. And so this is Paul's perspective on his rivals. Let's go to the last section here. And this is Paul's perspective on his life and death. Okay, so far, Paul has been able to maintain a positive outlook. He's been able to see the good in each of these uh, negative situations. But now, faced with the certainty of, of possible death, will Paul crack? Well, let's keep going. Look at the second half of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so in verse 18 here, Paul is like, look, I'm not only going to rejoice that the gospel is going out, I'm not only going to rejoice that this group is doing it with bad motives, but I'm also going to rejoice that through your prayers, Philippians, and through the help and the provision of the Holy Spirit, God is going to use what has happened to me, and he is going to work it out for my deliverance. Now, we know from what Paul says next that he doesn't necessarily mean he thinks and believes he will get out of prison. But rather what he means when he says it'll turn out for my deliverance is that he is saying he is confident that regardless of what happens, whether he walks out of prison or whether they take him out in a body bag, he is going to get delivered either way. In fact, many scholars argue here that what Paul means by deliverance is vindication and that actually he is quoting a very famous and well-known section in the book of Job. In Job chapter 13, starting in verse 15, Job says this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. Listen carefully to what I say. Let my words ring in your ears. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. You see, in this passage in Job, it's clear by deliverance, Job is talking about vindication. And in the same way, it appears that Paul has this in mind here as he says this to the Philippians. Again, I believe Paul recognizes and he understands that he very well could get executed, that he very well might never get out of prison, which is why, again, he goes on to say in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, I don't think Paul is so concerned about getting out of prison or uh, escaping martyrdom. What I think Paul is concerned with here is that he faces martyrdom with courage and that it brings glory and honor to Jesus, whether he lives or whether he dies. Again, what he says here is he says, I know that through your prayers, Paul believed in prayer. He says, through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit, I'm confident that I will be able to do that, that I will have sufficient courage. In fact, right after this, he goes on to very famously say in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I am to go on living in this body, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, again, as we think about verse 21, that's an amazing verse. I mean, there's a reason why it's been so special to many of us throughout our walk with the Lord. I mean, just again, think about this. Look how free Paul is here. He's sitting in prison and it's like, if Caesar was like, Paul, we're going to kill you. He's like, okay, great. To die is gain. He's like, okay, well, Paul, we're going to let you live. Okay, well, to live is Christ, right? Like, think of how free he is here. Caesar would just be like, darn you, Paul, what, what should I do? You're frustrating. Should I kill you? Or should I let you live? He's like, I, I don't care. You decide. You see, for Paul, there's nothing that Rome could do to him or to the gospel in order to thwart God's purposes. And talking about exactly what does Paul mean here by to live as Christ, uh, Bible scholar Gerald Hawthorne suggests this. For Paul, life is filled up and occupied with Christ in the sense that everything Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. So again, this is what Paul means by to live is Christ. Now, when it comes to verses 22 and 23, where Paul talks about this, you know, what shall I choose? Again, he says there, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now with that, I don't think Paul is in any way, you know, being suicidal here. Like, I don't think he's saying, you know, I'm thinking about taking my life, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But rather what I think he's trying to communicate here is the fact that he does see death as a release, that he does see it as a a benefit, That far from being afraid of it, he sees it as something to look forward to. I mean, how radical and upside down is that? I mean, for us as a culture, especially right now, I mean, you know, even before COVID, our culture and society was already freaked out about talking about death and just avoided it. I almost said avoided it like the plague, but then we got the plague, you know? And then with COVID now, I think that's just revealed even farther how uncomfortable and how fearful uh, our society is with death and including even among believers. I mean, it's obvious that by and large as a society, we know very little of true suffering and discomfort because again, in general, even us as believers, we, we do not long for or look forward to death. And yet here is the apostle Paul saying, man, Philippians, you know what? I'm tired. I'm really ready to depart. I, I, I want to die. I want to be with Christ. And he's saying that not in some sort of morbid way or because he's depressed. No, I believe he's saying it because he does, in fact, know what real suffering is like. And not only that, but I think he also really does love Jesus Christ. I mean, Christianity wasn't a game to Paul. It wasn't just a part of his life. No, it was his life. Like an engaged couple in a long distance relationship, Paul's like, man, I'm just so ready to finally be face to face with the one that I love. I'm tired of talking on the phone. I'm tired of writing letters. No, I want to be in the presence of my Savior forever. 
And yet, even with this strong desire, with this longing, we see here in verses 24 and 25 that Paul's pastoral responsibilities, in other words, that shepherd's heart that he has, it outweighs his personal desire to depart to be with Christ. You see, Paul knows and Paul understands that the way of Christ is the way of service. And because of that reality, he's convinced that his own preference to depart will be put aside so that he can remain and continue to serve the Philippians. Now, based on uh, dates and timing, it's hard to know exactly how much longer Paul lived past when he wrote this. But we do know from church history that Paul did, in fact, in the end, get killed. And he was martyred by the Romans. And yet here he is with this just amazing perspective and mindset, but both about his own life and his own mission and calling and also about his future death. And so as we close here, I just want to start to think about some application. I mean, what are we to make of all of this? I mean, what are we to think of Paul's perspective on each of these different areas and circumstances? I mean, is this even realistic for us to think and act this way? In other words, what I'm getting at is, is Paul just some sort of freak? <laughs> like, is he basically like the Superman of the Christian faith? Or is he someone that you and I can learn from and emulate? Well, on the one hand, I do think that, you know, there was a sense in which Paul was fairly unique and exceptional, right? I mean, he, you just think about all that he accomplished for the gospel, both in terms of missionary efforts, in terms of, you know, just beatings and the suffering that he endured. And then just really, as you just think about the fact that he wrote two thirds of the New Testament, I mean, Paul has a pretty impressive resume. So let's be fair about that. But on the other hand, Paul was just a man, right? We can't lose sight of that. Paul was not Jesus. He was not God. He sinned. He got discouraged. I mean, you definitely see that in 2 Corinthians. He wasn't always just so upbeat and optimistic. He struggled with fear. There's times he talks about being anxious about the churches he oversees. But what made him, I think, so effective and worth listening to is that he consistently both believed and practiced wholeheartedly what he preached. And specifically, as we think about today's passage, I think it's clear that Paul practiced something that he later on commands in the book of Philippians. You see, in chapter 4 of Philippians, he'll go on to tell them, and in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we certainly see him do that in today's passage. A little bit later on in chapter 4 and verse 8, he says this. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, while I'm sitting in prison chained up, Paul could have just let his mind move into that pessimistic negative thinking. And if he did that, there's a good chance that his response to the Philippians would have looked a lot different. Instead of drawing attention to the good and, and to all of the ways that God has, uh, has turned what was meant for evil and has turned it to good, and how God has allowed the gospel to advance because of his difficult circumstances, Again, if Paul wasn't practicing here, thinking about uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble and right and pure and good, then again, I don't think he could have had the perspective that he did here in chapter one. You see, I don't know, you know, obviously I didn't get to meet the apostle Paul. I look forward to it. I don't know if that just while living on the earth, if he was more naturally pessimistic or optimistic, but what I do know is that either way, Paul was an eternal optimist. And by that, what I mean is that Paul always kept the bigger picture in mind. He interpreted everything in his life in light of eternity. 
You see, Paul knew and he believed in all that Jesus had accomplished in the past. And not only that, but he believed and he had his faith in all that Jesus promised to do in the future. And the reality is, is that for all of us as followers of Jesus, we should be that kind of eternal optimist where we're focused on eternal things, where we have an eternal perspective. I mean, as Billy Graham once famously said, he said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to turn out all right. Now, that's not just a cheesy quote or that's not just wishful thinking. No, that's actually true, guys. That is reality. You see, Paul's worldview shaped his perspective in every aspect of his life and in his death. And therefore, his worldview gave him the resources he needed in order to endure hardship, to endure suffering, and to eventually endure martyrdom. Gordon Fee, again, in talking about this passage, he wrote this. He said, it would be easy to dismiss this passage, either an anecdotal narrative or as Paul simply putting the best possible face on a bad situation. But that would be to miss too much. Paul can write things like this because first, his theology is in good order. He has learned by the grace of God to see everything from the divine perspective. This is not wishfulness, but deep conviction that God had worked out his own divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ, and that by his spirit, he is carrying them out in the world through the church and therefore through both himself and others. It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rose tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And that bigger picture fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. Now, I know as we sit here, some of you might be really discouraged right now in your faith. Like perhaps some of you really are just ready to throw in the towel. You look around uh, some things that have happened the last several years around the church in America. You see it's various failures and scandals and imperfections. And you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I think I'm about done with church. Actually, I might even be done with Christianity as a whole. But if that's you, if you're in that place, I just want to challenge you right now. And I want to appeal to you to, like Paul, stop. To take a step back and to look at the bigger picture. So instead of focusing on uh, all of the negative and the failures that you see around you, to instead rejoice in the Lord always. To instead think about whatever is good and right and lovely and worthy of praise. Now to do that, that doesn't mean that we have to ignore or that we have to deny that, that there are discouraging things happening. There's no getting around that. But what it does mean is that what we focus on will shape and determine our perspective see, some of us in here, we may need to remind ourselves that God is always at work. We may need to remind ourselves that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is and Jesus will continue to build his church and that nothing, not even hell itself, will stop that. COVID's not going to stop Jesus building his church. Yes, it's true that we here in America, we may be living in a time of decline and hypocrisy and compromise. But listen, God is faithful. God will raise up a new generation, a generation that will recapture the gospel and will proclaim it boldly. And look, even if he doesn't, let's just say that, you know, I, I, I don't personally believe this. I know others do. Let's just say we are headed into the last days. We have to remind ourselves and remember that Jesus is coming back. 
Jesus will one day return to this earth and he will set up his kingdom. That prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, that is gonna happen one day. He will renew and recreate our physical bodies. He will recreate and, and, and restore this earth. I mean, even if you and I are tempted to be pessimistic in this life, we have to be eternal optimists. Paul said elsewhere, I've been thinking about this this week. He said, this momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. Right? Like we got to always keep that perspective in light of eternity. Our lives are just a blip in eternity. I mean, we can't forget that this is why the gospel is called good news. It's not good news because we get through this life pain-free. It's good news because of, there's a, because of the, the truth that there is life beyond life. There's life beyond this life. I mean, I don't know how many of you saw this video floating around social media this week um, from America's Got Talent, where it featured this young lady from Zanesville who got the golden buzzer. But if you haven't seen the video, you should definitely look it up. Again, it's kind of uh, going around everywhere right now. And the video is pretty moving. And in it, she talks about the fact that she has cancer and only has a 2% chance of survival. And that the cancer has spread to her lungs and is really just all over. And honestly, just to watch the video and to look at her, you can tell she doesn't look good. And yet there she is. She's on stage. She's got this big smile on her face. She says, you know, I just want people to know that I'm so much more than the things that I'm suffering. And then she sings this original song she wrote called It's Okay. Now, based on the song, it's hard to know where this girl is coming from in her faith or what her worldview is. But after just doing a little bit of research and finding her own personal blog, it's obvious that she is, in fact, a follower of Jesus. In fact, one of her posts that I read just from a couple months ago that was really moving was entitled, God is on the bathroom floor. And in that blog post, she's gut level honest about wrestling with God in her own cancer diagnosis. And she's just honest about the fact that I, I'm angry at times. I'm, I'm scared. I'm afraid. And so she's definitely not sugarcoating things. It's very raw. It's messy. However, though, at the same time, it, it seems to me that she has been able to capture some of what Paul says here in Philippians. And so to close here, let me just read to you some of what she wrote in that post. She said, I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die I, I, and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll just say that I never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door for me himself. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but also count me among the friends of God. If an explanation would help, he would write me one, I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. 
I, rem I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes did not wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight and the outline, the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer, thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I really can't explain it, but God is there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you, uh, even as this girl has articulated, Lord, you allow us to be messy in it. Lord, you allow us to be honest and raw. But thank you, Lord, that as we stick close to you, as we place our hope in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, thank you, Lord, that you're able to get us to that place of surrender, that place of just acknowledging that you are good, that even in tough circumstances, we can trust you, that you're always at work, that our life is bigger than the things that we suffer. Thank you, Lord, for the hope and the, the promise of eternal life with you. Thank you for the hope and the promise that, that this life is not all that there is, that there is life beyond this life, that Jesus, you're going to wipe away every tear as it talks about in Revelation. Jesus, you're going to renew this earth. Thank you that all that the enemy has stolen, Lord, you will restore. So Lord, I just pray you would help us as a body. You'd help us as believers to have that kind of mindset and perspective on all that comes into our lives, Lord, the good and the bad. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.